Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Christopher Newfield, director of research at the Independent Social Research Foundation in London and distinguished professor emeritus of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Newfield is a leading scholar of critical university studies. He and his interdisciplinary collaborators have recently published two books on the metrics of higher education, Metrics That Matter, Counting What's Really Important to College Students, and The Limits of the Numerical, The Abuses and Uses of Quantification. In addition, Newfield wrote a trilogy of books on the university as an intellectual and social institution, Ivy and Industry, Business and the Making of the American University, 1880 to 1980, Unmaking the Public University, The 40-Year Assault on the Middle Class, and The Great Mistake, How We Wrecked Public Universities and How We Can Fix Them. He will give a talk titled Jobs and Universities, A Tale of Two Futures on Thursday, March 7th, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2023-24 Cressman Lecturer, as part of the OHC's 40th anniversary theme, Humanities Matters. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background and the academic trajectory that led you to focus uh, on the university as an intellectual and social institution. Well, I was uh, initially trained as a 19th century American literature and sort of American intellectual history scholar. I wrote my first book on Ralph Waldo Emerson. I was always quite interested in the interaction between uh, people and their sort of their inner lives, their subjectivities on the one hand, and the organizations that they lived and worked in on the other hand. So there was society in the person, but then there was also the organization that was meeting mediating that. So I wrote a book about that called the Emerson effect that argued that Emerson was creating a kind of subjectivity or, or personality that was suited to the advent of the large hierarchical corporation. And I was writing this inside of a large hierarchical corporation, which was the, the University of California. And what was happening to it, and this is in the 90s when I was an assistant professor, was this first series of major budget cuts. So I was quite interested in why one of the richest states and this very wealthy country was having such a hard time funding its public university system and kind of took off from there. How would you describe the field of critical university studies? What do you do in that field? Well, we look at the uh, interaction between the institutional frameworks, uh, the social forces on the one hand, and the effects that they have inside the university on the other. And we're, uh, different people are interested in different things. I'm particularly interested in um, student learning and, and sort of personal development. I'm very interested in um, the impacts of, of race and racialization on higher education. Uh, and I'm very interested in the relationship between the, the full spectrum of research knowledge on the one hand and funding on the other. I mean, I, I was I was an undergraduate science major, and so I wasn't you know sort of averse to the sort of the, the mathy side of the budget question. And I ended up just kind of falling into through the academic senate at the University of California sort of detailed studies with inf information that didn't circulate normally in public about the university's finances. So I'm kind of 
you know, on the political economy side of literary studies. Uh, and it's that side does actually exist. I mean, there's I'm definitely not alone there, although it's relatively small group compared to say study of modernist poetry. And I just, you know, I saw lots of connections between the way that money was and wasn't flowing on the one hand and the which knowledges got became legitimate, became visible, became interesting to the public. So is it possible for you to highlight for us a couple of the key point, points of your assessment or critique of the state of U.S. public higher education today? Yeah, I think one is um, that it's become very resource dependent. So, I mean, this is a critically university studies theme uh, that came out of some sociological work. It's not so much literary. And that is, um, it's, you know, it's just become more dependent on private donors as the public funding side became cut and then more uncertain so that you maybe it's good this year. Um, you know, 2022 overall national funding for public universities finally got back to where it was in 2008. So the one you say, okay, well, that's good. On the other hand, there were a lot of years where you were underwater under the 2008 level. And you look forward in the 2020s, you think, well, I can't really count on this. So there's a pursuit of private funds. And the thing that I, I've really tried to get people to think about, and this is also sort of the literary side, is that private money comes with strings, right? I mean, it comes with people who have particular interests and particular views and goals. And they're, as philanthropy shifted from just sort of general donations to you know venture philanthropy, where outcomes are of great interest to the donor, the money has really moved into a small number of areas and the universities become very lopsided. So that's one of the things that uh, these books that you mentioned at the top have been studying is what is the money doing to people's brains and to the knowledge that those brains produce? And by people, I very much include undergraduate students in this because they are part of the production of knowledge in universities that takes place in the classroom as well as in the laboratory or the library. And we're all, we're all been steered by the way that the fundings work. So let's follow up about uh, the work on metrics that you've been doing. So one of the key characteristics of the academy, and you didn't use the phrase uh, just now, but we might say the neoliberal academy mm -hmm. with is its embrace of business logics and procedures. And one key aspect of that, and, and you've alluded to it already, is this prioritizing of metrics as essential to measure educational value. So um, you've, you've argued that those kind of approaches to higher education are rooted in a great mistake. Can you tell us what that mistake is? Yes. Okay. So there's two questions there, and I'll start with the second one. The great mistake start. there's a cycle in that book. And the first step in this kind of devolutionary cycle is to move away from the public benefit emphasis of higher education to the private benefit, the personal individual benefit. Once you, when, when you render both the, the individual and the collective public benefits of education invisible, which is what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years, the institution itself doesn't make sense. The funding, doesn't add up properly. And people don't really understand what happens on campus in the activities that we're all engaged in. It starts to look like job training instead of like 
personal intellectual development, which is what the university is really great at in ways I'd be happy to detail. It's a very, it's a pretty inefficient mode of preparation for specific jobs. Um, it's a great and very efficient way of helping people learn how to amass lots of different kinds of information, um, solve problems and become creative. And that's, you know, the, what happens under this great mistake where everything looks as though it's a return on investment issue and the, the benefits have to be internalizable by an individual person, which just is completely wrong. Do you want me to say something about the metrics project? Sure. Yeah, so these, there's a couple of books that have come out in the last three years done with groups. Uh, and the, the overall research project was called Limits of the Numerical. It was a collaboration between UC Santa Barbara, the University of Chicago and, the, and Cambridge University in the UK. And that was looking at exactly what the title says, that numbers say some things, but they miss a whole bunch of stuff. And they also, like I was saying a minute ago, render invisible a lot of things that not only that we care about for our daily lives, but that matter to an integrated understanding of the world and how systems and people interact. So um, we are fairly critical, and I in particular am critical of using quantification as a instrument, for example, identifying which scientific papers are the most important, which scientists are the most important for ranking universities, ranking laboratories, you know, across the country. Because that whole structure of displacing people in a hierarchical system, again, invisibilizes what the substance, the content, the relationships of what's actually happening in each of those labs. It also, I think, makes divergence and novelty more difficult rather than less difficult. I mean, the theory is, oh, you just find the smart people, they're the most productive, and you give them all the most of the money and save a little bit for the sake of, you know, just social peace, a little bit to everybody else. It's just, that's not how creativity and invention works. And that's primarily the thing that universities do well is our new ideas, not just the recirculation of things that we already know. And for that, we need, and, th and this is a, my obsession about public universities, we need everybody for that project, not just a narrow elite that's been validated by you know, one or another kinds of um, evaluative system. So you mentioned that you're interested in the impacts of these changes on undergraduates. So tell us a little bit about your assessment of what this shift to quantification has meant for undergrads and how it's impacted the way they understand and also the way they experience their educations at the at the in higher education well two things i mean i think one is that it's it's made it's normalized ranking i don't know what another word is but uh, so that I mean, one of the things that's happened in the last two generations is it's gotten much harder to get in everywhere it seems more important than ever to get into the highest ranked school or your job future and everything else is gonna be adversely affected. And there's same, something also going on in terms of pecking orders within universities. So, I mean, I mean, there's kind of a reaction against what was happening in the seventies and eighties and nineties where people inside of psychometric evaluation were saying, well, you know, SAT scores, IQ tests, they're really not valid. 
about they don't they don't assess potential they don't assess capability they don't assess general intelligence and what we have now is a kind of a, a return to what seems to me to be a very crude darwinistic kind of 19th century understanding of human capability so i think that that's something that a lot of students are struggling against the second thing is automation and mechanization and that you know the claim that um chat gpt type of you know general type of technology um can in fact replicate high higher order cognitive skills is intensifying that drift towards just mechanize the learning process and then train students in a in a activity that's going to make them good at doing mechanical reproduction in whatever job they get later on as opposed to being fountainheads of something new or as um you know use these phrases again creative problem solvers that require unexpected combinations of information and you know the kind of innovative stuff that you know you see people do all the time in their everyday lives but which are not being properly recognized under this this current you know quantitative order you've also argued that this this idea that um you go to the you know you go to college and the point of college is to get you to a place where you can get a job and that the way that uh, resources have been redistributed in the neoliberal academy has prioritized certain areas and mm -hmm. you you are a humanist i'm a humanist as you pointed out our numbers of majors have fallen and so in in my institution one of the places where english majors humanities majors have gone is to undergraduate degrees in the journalism school because the the belief is that journalism is a career you've critiqued that argument and you've you've made some counter arguments about that that kind of thinking is erroneous that that's a mistake about this question of employment will you say a little bit about that well the jobs of the future to use that horrible phrase are going to be what's beyond the machine, what's the, what's beyond the program. And trade courses, I think are important, but I think they're kind of the back ends or the two fundamental formation courses. And those are the things that are getting underfunded and, and sort of de-staffed as they suffer under enrollment. I don't think we've really explained to to students or even to ourselves and certainly not to our administrators, um, how important this kind of deep skilling is and how long it takes and how it requires kind of sequencing. I mean, just to give an example, I, I um, ran um, study abroad programs in France for three years for the University of California system. I, would, I would, you know, was a French speaker, but not a French instructor and I'd never been you know, involved in the, the sort of the pedagogical process, except as its, as its victim, right? As the struggling recipient of adult, you know, as, an, as a post-teenager French courses. And what I um, tried to get the University of California interested in, having done that job for three years and seen what both the student struggle and the student transformation when they got to a certain point of fluency, was a four-year program. So, you know, it's telling students if you want to really be able to use a foreign language as opposed to just satisfy a requirement, you need to start, and you haven't studied it 
took a pretty high level in high school, come the summer before university, start there intensively, two years of pretty intensive language instruction every term, one year, a full year abroad, a fourth year back on campus of doing sort of advanced work. And by the time you graduate, you'll be able to say, yeah, I could actually work in a French employment context. I could go, I could find a job abroad. I could do some kinds of basic translation, et cetera. There was just nobody that was running the program could, could see how we could fund that and structure it. We just didn't have the resources for that anymore. But I think part of the problem also is that we're having a hard time understanding skill, craft, deep ability that human beings have to learn. We're not born really knowing much of anything. University is the place where you get this depth, you get this power, you get this advanced stage, not the, not the clumsy amateur stage, you get past that. And it's the best feeling in the world, as well as a great thing for employers. And I just, we've lost our confidence and we've lost our, our I don't know, like our, our arrogance that at some point, you know, we had about saying, this is, this is the level and we're gonna get you there and we're structuring the whole university to make that happen. And then we're also gonna expect you to understand what the level is that's what's required of them and then do those things. And it, we just, we're not doing it right now for the most part, there are exceptions, but this, that's not the structure. So I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about some yeah, of your yeah. So um, in January of uh, 23, you delivered the presidential address to the MLA, which is the Modern Language Association, which is the professional organization of language instructors, English and foreign languages. And you argued in that talk about a national strategy for literary and cultural study. Can you tell us a little bit about that strategy and say why it's essential that we work to achieve it? Yeah, we're we're broke. On the national level, we have basically no money for research compared to um, sciences, and even to some extent the social sciences. So we can't do um, the volume of research that we need to do. We can't do the retraining and the advanced training that we need to do to answer problems, all of which are interdisciplinary. We don't have the money to cross train our undergraduates or our graduate students. Um, and we are therefore sort of falling behind in terms of one of our major public contributions. And that is this, there is no problem on the face of the earth that is, can be solved through technical solutions alone. There's nothing, you know, think about climate change. How do you get people to move out of um, combustion engines? How do you get folks to pay some of the cost of insulating their houses? Um, around race relations or, and around migration, pick your inflammatory subject. There is absolutely no way that any of these things are gonna be solved by having you know, radar at the border or whatever it is that, that science and technology can come up with. All that has to do with changing human consciousness, personal relationships, social structures, political theories, cultural theories, cultural production, all of that. Um, a lot of folks in literary studies in particular feel that we the only solution is for us to stick with our knitting. In other words, stay with the literary text. I, I love, I mean, I, I spend much of every day with them, at least as an amateur, reading them or listening to them on audible books. But it's, we can't, 
be supported in modern universities unless we have research problems and research activities. And we will never attract undergraduate majors back as a major. We'll take our classes as electives, but not as a major, unless we can show that we are producing functional knowledge that will give them a platform as adults that will also help them change the world in partner with their engineering roommates and their programmers and the biologists that they are hanging out with also. There's a, there has to be a, a national organizational change. I mean, I don't, I don't know that your audience wants to hear so much about that. It's, it's, it's organizational and slightly technical, but the Modern Language Association, um, the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, there's a whole series of organizations that need to get together to start building these arguments much more militantly than we have so far, and then push out this uh, this information through all of the institutions, the universities, and also the public channels, so that the federal government and state government see that basically none of the problems that everybody is worried about are going to be solved unless we have better balance in the forms of knowledge that we can bring together to address it. So one of those problems that you mentioned uh, as being of central interest to you is the question of race, race relations, racialization. And last month, you published a piece in the LA Review of Books entitled Racial Equality After Affirmative Action. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece and also about your view of where this question of race and racialization fits in the stories that you've been telling about the state of the university in America? Well, it's partly biographical. <clears throat> you know, my I'm third or fourth generation Californian. I'm second generation college degree. My parents were first generation students. Um, and the base, the reason that they were able to go from essentially working class lives to middle class lives, for better or worse, I and mean, there were lots of limitations to that. Also. But it was a better sort of platform of daily life was because college in the 50s and 60s was essentially free. I mean, the state had just decided that this was something that was going to, everybody was going to give to themselves. And this was a period when the themselves, who we are in California, was 90, 95% white. The folks who were not white were basically not first-class citizens in the society. It's a part of American history that all of us know about and that we often try not to think about. So basically, I thought, well, now that the K through 12 population of California's um, schools, and this is our, in the 1990s, is two thirds, three quarters students of color, of course, we're just gonna continue to do this. And in fact, that's exactly when we stopped. I, I once did a slide mapping the share of state personal income that went to UC against the share of the undergraduate population that was Anglo, and they went down in lockstep. So I just thought, okay, well, Nobody wants to say, well, we're all racists, but in fact, this is a kind of a textbook case of structural racism, where you withdraw investment from um, racially diverse institutions and reserve that capital for other stuff that is basically less diverse. So I've really been massively opposed to this. And then I've just been thinking since this seems like pretty obvious, what I've just said, that we shouldn't you know, have a two-tier or three-tier system anymore in, you know, 2024. 
uh, been interested in the resistance to this. Like, why isn't this happening? Why is there so much division in the US still about this? Why are white Americans still so divided? Although this is really starting to change, finally. And um, my answer was partly, and this is the, the LA Review of Books piece, is that we haven't really rallied around the concept of racial equality of outcomes as the ethical basis for a racially diverse and integratable society. You know, it's, just, it's always equality of opportunity. Uh, and ever since really the 60s, we've been kind of backpedaling from that. And that includes progressives. It's across the political spectrum. So anyway, the piece is an argument in favor of standing on that and then rewriting a racial narrative about the future of the United States that is not controlled by the very powerful narrative that in the piece I suggest has been created through affirmative action decisions by the Supreme Court of the US. So you, you recently have undergone a, a significant professional shift. You left uh, the UC system and the United States and you moved to London and you are now uh, uh, working at the Independent Social Research Foundation. So tell us what the Independent Social Research Foundation does. Uh, we fund innovative social science research. Although my colleagues could hear me, they would correct, they would chide me for using the word innovative. As a, um, it's the people that we fund are, are mostly social scientists, other people from the arts and the humanities. They're often at the, I mean, they're at the kind of at the cutting edge of their disciplines. They're doing very unusual work. They're usually mixing uh, fields. So there's a lot of interdisciplinary work. People are making films about um, Muslim beekeepers in mountainous Bosnia and how they are indexing climate change and also potential responses that come out of their religious traditions to that. I mean, that's an example of someone who is not just doing a straight on sort of climate change project, but looking at it from this very interesting angle. So we have, it's really just a pleasure to work with folks that are doing uh, this kind of um, very unusual research and who are also doing the tandem with people from, from other disciplines. We also fund independent scholars who are not attached to universities at all, which is something that I'm particularly happy with. So what inspired you to make that shift? Um, I've been at, uh, UC Santa Barbara for 30 years, and it felt like it was a good time to to do something new. And I, um, I mean, it's interesting to look at sort of Anglo America from the other side of the ocean. It's really been out of the frying pan into the fire in terms of sort of political meltdowns. It's it's it's, it's less violent in the UK, uh, but it's not really more coherent. I mean, it's just interesting transitions here too. And it's also, um, there's access to a whole range of um, issues that are still a part of my research, including race and migration. That's, you know, it's, it's a different framework for that set of concerns that I was getting in the United States. I mentioned that you'll be giving this talk, Jobs and Universities, A Tale of Two Futures on Thursday, March 7th as the OHC's Cressman Lecturer. Can you give us a little teaser about what you'll be discussing in that lecture? Yeah, it's um, the two futures are we focus on jobs or we focus on knowledge. And I'm gonna argue for the second and then say that that's the only way we can deal with jobs also. 
Uh, <laughs> we're just about out of time, so this will be my last question. Can you tell us um, a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on currently? I'm working on political affects, personally, um, on um, the rise of authoritarianism and how to deal with that uh, it, as it intersects the race and migration that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, so I'm writing a book about knowledge crisis and the its connection to authoritarianism and how we can sort of, I think we rework that. I'm I mean I'm interested. Why does crisis tend to push people to the right? And I don't think we have good enough answers to that. We have a lot of great sort of political science and work in other fields that show this is happening. But the causal mechanisms I haven't really found very convincing. So I'd like to uh, unpick that and, and reverse engineer it and fix it so that it's we're not always shifting in the same sort of backward direction whenever we become afraid of the future. <laughs> A worthwhile and timely project. Thank you, Chris, for speaking with us. It's been a real pleasure. We're so looking forward to seeing you next month in person on the campus of the University of Oregon. It's been great talking with you, thanks. I've been speaking with Christopher Newfield, Director of Research at the Independent Social Research Foundation in London and a leading scholar of critical university studies. He will give a talk titled Jobs and Universities, A Tale of Two Futures on Thursday, March 7th, 2024 at the University of Oregon as the Oregon Humanities Center's 23-24 Cressman Lecture and as part of the OHC's 40th anniversary theme of Humanities Matters. Thanks so much for watching.